1: top story, a bad day for some of the president's men. His former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to illegal campaign finance charges, all but naming Trump as having ordered him to do it. Moments later, the president's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was convicted on eight counts of tax and bank fraud charges. Joining us from Capitol Hill is Bloomberg's Kevin Cirilli, our chief Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Kevin, on a busy day for Washington DC. What has changed for the president?
2: Well, there's an increasing pressure, Jonathan, from Democrats to avoid an uh, abuse of pardoning power as it's being described. There's a legislation in the Democratic-controlled attorney general's office in New York that would close what they argue is a loophole for the president to pardon someone like Paul Manafort, Democrats up on Capitol Hill in the House, and the Senate urging uh, Republicans to, to avoid the issue uh, by, by also joining them and, and avoiding having the president pardon them Look. For the president's next 24 hours, he's set to have lunch with the secretary of defense and then have an awarding of the Medal of Honor later this afternoon. The president, while speaking last night in West Virginia uh, uh, prior to that speech, uh, criticized Paul Manafort, uh, criticized uh, uh, Paul Manafort uh, in saying, or I'm sorry, defended Paul Manafort, but made no mention of Michael Cohen.
1: So far, we haven't had really an official response from the President of the United States. Apart from that rally and heading to that rally, Kevin, what's expected in Washington, D.C.? What comes next?
2: Well, when I speak to Republicans, they they have echoed the President in the sense that they've said that there is no uh, evidence of collusion. Polls suggest that the base of the Republican Party is still very much behind the President in terms of uh, uh, agreeing and echoing him when they say that the investigation is a witch hunt. In terms of what comes next, really it becomes whenever Bob Mueller wraps up his investigation. And I spoke with several sources yesterday, Jonathan, who said to me that this is a win for the, for the special counsel's investigation because of the court documents that she read in the intro which is essentially Michael Cohen says he was instructed by the only candidate he was working for at the time Donald Trump to provide those hush money payments.
1: Kevin Cirilli great to catch up with you this morning on a busy morning for Kevin Cirilli and everyone down in Washington DC joining us now from New York I'm pleased to say that Kim Wallace joins us now Eurasia Group Managing Director he served in President Obama's administration as Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the Treasury Department. Kim it's always great to get your insights so let's begin with an extreme question does any of this as it stands incrementally impact the odds of the president staying in the White House?
3: Good morning, Jonathan. I I think it's premature to uh, take these uh, disparate acts, although they they are coming fast and furious, and extrapolate out that far. I would say this, that uh, the president is under pressure that's unique for presidents. He's not only multitasking on an array of transformative policy agendas, he's also now got to worry about a few different legal processes underway that's going to tax his staff it will tax obviously his legal staff but it will more importantly make more reticent to partisans on capitol hill to venture out on any other policy excursion so it's it's less whether or not in my view whether or not impeachment is around the corner more whether or not washington has become a risk to markets
0: kim do you just assume that republicans you know, is in a general statement, we'll do nothing until the election. We're 76 days away. And even with the historic moment that we saw yesterday afternoon, and folks, for those of you listening worldwide in Radio London, it was extraordinary to see John Farrell, the split screen on, on television of the two trials going on at the same time. I mean, just extraordinary. But within this, Kim, do the Republicans just keep doing what they're doing, which is, maybe living in silence while they support the president.
3: You know, Tom, that had been my working assumption up until yesterday. 76 days is a long time, and it depends, in my view, GOP behavior going into the election depends on public opinion. If the polls that we start getting in, you know, five days add on to the polls we've already seen where on the issue of corruption, the president is in double-digit negatives Uh, net negatives. If that grows and worsens, it's going to make some of these 30, 40 competitive races and the Republicans in them very nervous, and likely they're going to seek some distance from the White House. Judge
0: Farrell, that was Greg Vallier's lead lead thought, was this is about public opinion, less about all the nuances in the Beltway stuff, Mr. Cirilli. So, um, So
1: let me ask you another question, Kim. Does any of this incrementally damage Republicans' midterm election prospects?
3: You know, Jonathan, they weren't bright uh, going into this, and certainly this issue of uh, corruption and the the president's legal problems has been long enough. It hasn't affected the base's support for him. What What we'll note retrospectively is whether or not it hurt turnout in the base, whether that is what they're telling pollsters about their support for the president doesn't show up. On November 7th, when they actually have to go to the polls and vote for establishment Republicans who are different from the president.
1: Kim, you brought up the markets, so I want to talk about the markets. Um, We caught up with Bob Doll of Nuveen Asset Management a little bit earlier, and he brought up two extremely imperfect parallels, um, Nixon and Clinton. And both of those issues and the way those episodes unfolded for the financial markets is that with Nixon markets went down and with Clinton – Markets went up and it was nothing really to do with any of the individuals or any of the episodes specifically. It was about earnings and it was about growth and earnings and growth weren't good in the 70s and they were good in the 90s. Isn't that really the story here, Kim? How insulated markets will be is dependent on something else completely separate from Washington, D.C.?
3: I think that's true to large part. The fundamentals always matter most to the markets. But going back to Bob's 1973 uh, point, in January of 73, the S&P cracked. It didn't regain its nominal value of 102 for seven and a half years, and that's because wars, energy embargoes, other supply chain yeah. problems, and hyperinflation. So the problem with confidence in the White House being cracked is that the fundamentals have to go well for a long time to restore confidence in the markets. Kim Wallace,
0: to your expertise with Treasury, where does Secretary Mnuchin fit into this? He's been, I'm going to suggest, relatively quiet recently. Is he an important player in the next 76 days?
3: The Secretary might be tested in ways over the next 76 days that he hasn't been in the previous seven quarters, Tom. It would seem to me that he would would want to remain quiet so as not to change his behavior and therefore have markets notice that he's acting differently. But he's certainly going to be more circumspect in what he's willing to say, whether it's about uh, the dollar or whether it's about markets.
0: Kim Wallace, thank you so much with Eurasia Group uh, this morning. uh, Truly Uh, timely, as as we all digest what we saw. To that question on Washington and the events of the last 24 hours, our interview of the day. Robert Ray is with us, which barely describes uh, his work. On any number of cases, the attraction of Robert Ray uh, is the former uh, uh, the head of the Office of Independent Counsel. This after Ken Starr and with Ken Starr is a number of cases he's been involved with. And all of this, Bob, came out of your work at Washington and Lee Law School, which to me is the most interesting law school in America. You went from Princeton down the Shenandoah Valley to this little, little school which is a jewel of law. What does Washington and Lee, the history there, in that law school there, tell you about the moment we witnessed yesterday?
4: Well, uniquely Washington and Lee, of course, uh, came largely into existence and was furthered as the result of a gift by President Washington. It's steeped in our history so it, 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 it travels all the way back to, yeah. the, to the revolution and before. And of course, it, um, it is the place, what was then Washington College, where Robert E. Lee went and became president of uh, the college after the, uh, the end okay. of the Appomattox and the end of the Civil War.
0: So last night, at near 12 midnight, Lawfare published their long article, and they made clear what happened yesterday's never happened in the Washington and Lee Republic. Was it that original, what happened yesterday?
4: It certainly was um, a significant moment. I'm not sure I would quite compare it to um, that date in 1974 when a slew of the, the president's men, meaning President Nixon's men, were mm-hmm. Archibald uh, Cox, know, subject yeah. to uh, to indictment. Um, mm-hmm. But having said that, I mean, obviously, you can cr- certainly criticize and the fair criticism of the fact that the president uh, during the campaign uh, and thereafter surrounded himself with, at least in this instance, two very questionable figures. And it creates legal problems, obviously, for mm-hmm. the president as a result, yeah. at least in part of the uh, – uh, but particularly the, the Michael Cohen plea and, and whether or not, mm-hmm. you know, as has been re- now reported – Uh, whether there's more to come with regard to further implicating the president in connection with an alleged uh,
1: campaign finance violation. So let's talk about Michael Cohen. He's effectively all but named the president as having ordered him to commit a crime.
4: Um, Well, I'd be careful about effectively. I mean, he he was directed by the candidate uh, to make a payment. Whether you can turn that into... The president knowingly and willfully violated the campaign finance laws is, at least in my judgment, altogether another question. And, you know, to put it in layman's terms, the, you know, the, the jury's still out on that
1: question. So if the jury's still out. Cohen's law, as you say, there could be some escalation risk embedded into this episode because he's gone on MSNBC and said that Cohen has knowledge of Russian conspiracy. Let's talk about best practice then. How would you advise the president to conduct himself over the coming months with this going on?
4: Well, I I, I think I have said previously that I think the president's best strategy at this point is to ride this thing out to a conclusion. I think it does raise the, the, the specter and the prospect of the significance of the midterm elections and whether or not the president would face impeachment in the event that the House of Representatives went to the Democrats. Uh, because they would have subpoena power, and there's already some indication that leading figures in the Democratic Party seem to be hellbent and determined to turn this into an impeachment proceeding. Query whether that really is where they want to go, and whether or not campaign finance violations really—if there's nothing more—and I guess I, we still don't know yet because Bob Mueller has not concluded his investigation. Yeah, but you know. Where this goes obviously is the the sixty four
1: thousand dollar question. Well let's ask that basic question. Are violations of campaign finance rules before you are the president of the United States, is that grounds for impeachment?
4: Well, it's obviously, at the end of the day, a political judgment rather than a legal judgment, and it is whatever the Congress of the United States decides. I mean, they get to decide whether or not under the Constitution that would constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. And some people would argue yes, and some people would argue no. At the end of the day, what is it? It's whatever Congress decides it is. But remember also, and this is, I think, the lesson of history if we go back to the beginning, there have only been impeachment proceedings twice against uh, a president. The first, Andrew Johnson, and the second, Bill Clinton, neither of which were successful. What people need to understand and remember is it is a partisan and political proceeding, but it requires under the Constitution, because it's a very high bar, The only way a president can be removed and the result of an election overturned is if there is a conviction in the Senate, and because it is required under the Constitution that it be a two-thirds majority, the only way that's ever going to happen is if the party in power deserts the president. And as a result of that, as was the case with Richard Nixon, um, since although he was never impeached, um, and removed from office. Obviously, he resigned before that happened. But he, the reason he resigned right. is because it was a foregone conclusion that the Republican Party had abandoned him. And you know, facts being right, stubborn, right, right. stubborn things, um, they came to the conclusion that in fact he was involved in a conspiracy to obstruct justice.
0: If you're just joining us, Robert Ray, with us. Uh, prosecutor is what as Wikipedia says, which barely describes his public service, including writing the actual reports on Lewinsky, Madison, guarantee on Mrs. Clinton, Bernard Nussbaum, and others over the years. What does the media get wrong in their coverage? You are, like Mr. Mueller, total business, total grizzled, legal, It's a now I assume it's a word processor, but you got a quill in your hand and you're writing it out, these actual documents. What's the media get wrong in its coverage?
4: Well there seems to be largely an overreaction to every single thing that comes out. I mean, we have you know, to do that or they won't watch. Well, I guess that's <laughs> I mean, I guess that's right, but I mean, you know, a, a dispassionate prosecutor asks the question just because for example, Michael Cohen says that Donald Trump directed him to make a campaign contribution, begs the question about whether or not Donald Trump was knowingly in violation of the campaign finance laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, you'd think about some very relevant considerations, not the least of which is, hello, Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's lawyer. Yep. Donald Trump has an advice of counsel defense. I mean, I you know I assume his defense is going to be, listen, I asked Michael Cohen to take care of this, but I it's... never told Michael Cohen to violate the law. In any event, I'm not a lawyer. He is. I depend on his legal advice, and I depend and relied on the fact
1: that he wouldn't be engaged in a campaign finance violation. Uh, and Thomas points out this. <laughs> far more nuanced and complex than I think people appreciate. Just because Michael Cohen has committed a crime and admitted yeah. he's committed a crime and said the president <clears throat> was the person that ordered him to do whatever he has right. done does not mean necessarily the president has committed a crime. It's not the
4: same thing as ordering him to commit a federal felony. So, look, I don't know what the conversations mm-hmm. were. I think... I would be surprised if the conversations are what I guess the media seems to speculate automatically. Well, geez, that means he has the keys to the kingdom and he knows that Donald Trump is a felon, that Bob Mueller's office would already have known that. And if they already knew that and had that, it was surprising to me that they would have A, let go of the prosecution by giving it to the Southern District of New York, and B, um, if if they had that information, then why didn't they sign them right. up to a cooperation agreement, which is not what happened yesterday in court? So again, I mean, I don't need to, you know, spread okay. uh, but, uh, you know a, a, and, a big blanket I, of of cold water over all of this. But I guess my point okay. is is that there's a bit of an overreaction to its significance. I'm not saying it's insignificant. It is significant when two members of the president's inner circle have now been found guilty or by a jury and or pleaded guilty to federal felonies. That's not an insignificant development.
0: One final question. In your experience, how do these discussions change when it's about you're not going to be with your kids or your kids are going to get involved when families are drawn into this? Well, that's the other missing piece uh, to all of this. Thank you. In
4: addition to the overreaction. You know, there's a human story here that gets completely lost. Tell us
0: about that. Let me, t- let me tell you how
4: it feels to be on the receiving end of the full weight and authority of the United States government and the United States Justice Department zeroed in and targeted on your head to have you brought to justice. That is a, uh, a harrowing moment. I used to say I would never wish a special counsel or independent counsel investigation on my worst enemy because of the frightening power that is exercised in order to hold people to justice. Now, you know, that's the beauty of this country is that we do hold people accountable. But, you know, taking a just a pause and a deep breath to reflect on how difficult that must right. be. The one thing that will be, that will be true here that both Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort will face now quickly over the next several weeks right. will be whether or not they've got anything further to give. If there's something there to give, okay. it will be gotten we, as the result of this pressure. We've
0: got to leave it there. Robert Ray, thank you so much, former prosecutor. John, I want you to bring in our next esteemed guest, but I just want to say that he and many others need a massive in subtle victory lap, for not once saying, stay in the market, have courage, but in this great bull market, just time after time after time. It's been an extraordinary run.
1: Staying long and strong. Bob Dobb, Nuveen, Asset Management Portfolio Manager, he joins us now. Bob, great to catch up. It's a record run for the bull market, depending on how you measure it. It's a record high in yesterday's session, and it's still the most unloved bull market in history. Why, Bob?
5: Yes, there are so many skeptics, Jonathan, as you well know, and bull markets love to climb those walls of worry. And the the list of reasons to worry is long and seems to be increasing. Is the economy running out of steam? Is the bull market too old? Is the president not going to be able to govern? And the list goes on and on and on. And in the meantime, the economy is, last I checked, really good, and earnings are even better. And that's what moves stocks. Last year, the most often question I got was... With Washington, D.C. such a mess, how can the stock market be so good? (laughs) And my response is you answered your own question. Washington, D.C. does not move stocks. Earnings move stocks. Yes, D.C. does things from a policy standpoint that can affect earnings over the long term, but but you know that earnings story.
1: The earnings story right now is pretty good, and it's juiced by a tax cut, juiced by a tax cut, and you just wonder how sustainable it is. Do you take some optimism by how good top-line growth has been, Bob?
5: Yes, we estimate of the call it 25% earnings growth in the first half of the year, about a third of it has come from extraordinarily top-line growth, which means the U.S. economy is doing well in most pockets. And outside the U.S., well, it's frayed a little bit on the edges. is pretty good as well, and so the multinationals have some revenue growth. Uh, revenue growth is awesome, and you mentioned the tax bill. Thank goodness, all this political noise is coming after that tax bill is in effect, and that's the stimulus that we will enjoy, no matter how these uh, proceedings uh, go.
0: Where's your favorite sector? I, I mean, if 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 we're if we're rich, I got to get in the market. I'm a sector. Uh, Generator, what's the sector I want to be in right now?
5: I will answer your question, but let me put a theme on the table, Tom, if I might, that I think is even more important. Owning companies as a U.S. investor that get most of their earnings from inside the U.S., therefore de-emphasizing multinational earnings has had major tailwinds. The tax bill, relative economic and earnings growth, the Mm -hmm. trade issue, currency, all of them have been supportive of that theme. So question, where do you find those names? of healthcare names, uh, insurers, etc., tend to be more domestic. The retailers, here's Target with another wonderful earnings report. Uh, The retailers, mostly domestic uh, industry, they're the kind of places I would uh, park my money.
0: Where are you seeing with use of money right now? I mean, you know, we came out of this and there were some real skeptics about investment and what was going to be a share buyback and dividend growth. What's the actual numbers that you uh, calculate with Naveen every
5: day? So so we're looking at uh, uh, we're looking at earnings growth peaking, but earnings still being strong. I mean a lot of people oh, earnings growth peak, therefore, the stock market's got to have trouble. no no, 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 no. If we go from plus twenty five to minus two, yeah, the stock market would have trouble right. we're going from plus twenty five to plus eighteen plus twenty What are they doing like with that. the cash? Uh, They're taking the cash and reinvesting their business. Capital expenditures up 15 to 20%, depending what series you look at. And yes, they're buying back stock. And yes, they're raising dividends because cash flow is so strong. They can do all the above. And M&A, buying the company down the street. There are lots of great uses of cash when this is strong.
0: And if we go to William Priest and free cash flow and, and use of cash shareholder yield, what's my yield on the market January 1st? I mean, if you look at... Use of cash plus cash dividend. What is it four, five, six percent all in day one?
5: Four four to five is our guess. Um, but dividends are moving up because of the cash flow. Share buybacks uh, are, are, have increased, but as a percentage of the capitalization, not as much. Thank goodness corporate CEOs are more optimistic on their business and more willing to reinvest. So we'll take a dividend increase or a share buyback uh, in a company that's net free cash flow positive, but we much prefer reinvest in your business. Show me you're investing to improve your return on equity, return on assets, return on investment and your growth rate.
1: Bob, you and I have talked about this before. Let's talk about the yield curve. Two's tens has just broken down today to new cycle tights. So the the spread between the two year and the 10 year in the treasury market, around about 22 basis points. We dropped below that very briefly in today's session. How do you communicate to clients that they shouldn't worry yet?
5: Because historically, when the yield curve narrows, it is because the economy is doing well, earnings are doing well, and the Fed is normalizing rates, usually a period when stocks do extraordinarily well. The yield curve began to narrow of, of, of note about a year ago, and if I sold stocks based on that, I've been made a mistake. The yellow light doesn't go on for me until the yield curve actually inverts. And yellow doesn't mean I run. It just means I have a bunch of green flags, and I would add one yellow flag uh, in in the mix of all the good things I look at. So watch it carefully. Uh, it's, It's not a positive for the stock market, but not yet a negative.
0: You know, Bob, you and I have known each other for years. Explain to those younger how original this cycle is and how you can stay invested. Because John Farrow and I are positive on Friday there will be gloom essays galore.
5: Yes, there will be. Um, I, I guess to keep it simple, Tom, if you, told, if you dropped me on the planet and told me that real GDP in the U.S. was three, the nominal GDP in the U.S. was five, the unemployment rate was below four, yeah. and, and wage rate inflation was two point something, I'd say, wow, either you're lying to me or this is an unbelievable yeah. set of circumstances. What, what, what,
0: what, Bob, i got to stop the show, folks. What Mr. Dahl just said there is so important, John. Just it's incredibly important to to take all the noise away that we all live with. Like AC Milan and Juventus. So you, take the noise you know, away. You, you are the source of the noise <clears throat> and today. Bob, seriously. And Bob Bob Dahl nails it.
1: <laughs> Bob Dahl, we've also got to say thank you to you. Bob, thank you for joining the show today. And My giving Blu- Call us when you go negative. <laughs> Movie <laughs> we'll asset deal, management we'll portfolio manager. We'll be talking to Bob long before he turns negative.
0: John, we've got to do a surveillance correction. Phil saves the day with Mark McCormick of TD Securities looking for Capitals Maple Leafs in January. Uh, it's the Scotia Arena, Scotia Bank. Wait a second. Wait a Scotia second. Bank is you, is you the called
1: me out on air about calling it the stadium? The Garden. It's the Garden. Maple Leafs Garden. But is it the Garden or not? It
0: will always be the Maple Leaf. It, it is. It is the Montreal Forum. Right. The Maple Leaf Garden. Maple Leaf Garden. But it's sponsored now by Scotia Bank. This is the most Phil,
1: complex correction it, it I've is. ever heard. This, this is not, what that's not millions of dollars are involved. That's not even a correction. They don't.
0: They do this in Chicago. They don't. They don't. You know, it, it's 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 the House of Stan Makita. Did, did
1: someone email you annoyed?
0: Phil was annoyed. Yeah, Phil sent me an email. Also annoyed is Diane Swank because of has Chicago. To to
1: this. No, she.
0: No, come on, Diane Swank knows how sad I am, and we covered it a few weeks ago on the passing. Diana, the giant of the Chicago Blackhawks, Stan Makeda. He meant a lot to the city of Chicago, didn't he?
6: He absolutely did. In fact, you know... I'm not a huge hockey fan, although I come from Detroit yeah. originally, so you can imagine the hockey there as well. But one of my colleagues a very long time ago on all my Mac equipment put a hockey puck, and I called him up and I said, you know, it's still there as my screensaver is the hockey at the, ho- the well, hockey stick with the hockey puck. And he laughed, and he said, that's just because you just don't know how to remove it. <laughs> well, <Stamikita laughs> but it's not yeah. because I'm in Chicago.
0: Particularly Stan Mikita with his contribution to the deaf community across Illinois Amazing. and America. Diane Swank, we're looking at uh, a, an, a, an economy that is buoyant. John and I have heard interview after interview today saying it is about the economy. Where are we migrating to, a 3% run rate or will it be lower?
6: Well, we'll see, I think, close to 3% in the second half of the year. It will move down a bit as we move into 2019. One of the big hurdles out there is some of the data that's coming out today and to see what's going on with housing. Housing has been a disappointment, and we don't want it to be the the canary in the coal mine. It has been a laggard. We've seen a lot of foreign investment pull out of some of the major cities, which may be an opportunity for millennials trying to buy and unable to get to some of the price points that we've been seeing out there. But it is something that's been a rocky road. the housing market. That said, we still have momentum going into 2019. The other question is what's going to happen on the trade front. We've seen some cooling of heads on the escalation of trade tariffs. We hope that continues. That's very, very important because uncertainty regarding tariffs has already taken a toll on some plants and um, retailers warehouses and transportation industry plans in terms of their 2019 spend budgets and what they want to invest in the
1: US economy. Don, at the moment, as you point out though, the fundamentals of the US economy are really rather strong and they're set to stay strong at least through the end of this year. The politics is becoming much more complex and I'm just wondering how you think about the politics right now. What is the channel that the politics can feed through and infect the strength of the, this US economy? Do you think there is one? <laughs>
6: certainly there is. I mean, politics is policy, the politics of uncertainty. That's one of the things that we're grappling with right now. I think the economy um, is very robust. We're getting an extra boost from fiscal stimulus. We may have to pay for that later on. In fact, they think we will. But I never begrudge us a great economy or a better economy. And that's something that we have to embrace. What I worry about is the uncertainty surrounding what comes next, the uncertainty about where policy will go, who will make the decisions about policy, how those decisions will be executed. All of those things do play into long-term plans by companies, and we're also short-term oriented in terms of what happens quarter to quarter, but over the longer term, we have a world in which we've seen many Mm -hmm. populist leaders rise. People look at Venezuela today, a true mess with a populist leader, and those leaders tend to think the invisible hand of the market belongs to them, and they choose winners and losers. And the more that we see leaders, whether it be in the developed or the developing world, pick winners and losers. In an economy, no. it undermines efficiency and undermines those bets we have to make going forward.
0: Right. Diane, uh, to get to our next section, is Jackson Hole have value this year? <laughs>
6: Jackson Hall always has value. I love Jackson Hall. I don't to be going there this year, um, but I think it's an amazing place. It's one of the few places where you see academics, you see policymakers, and the press all together, and the opinions that go around and the thought that comes out of that kind of unique sort of mingling of thought is really important yeah. just on the trails and things like that. This year, I think the most important thing is actually to make less news than more news. Jay Powell, as we know, <laughs> is sort of uh, feeling a little pr- pressure so, right now and we have to get him so, to, he's gonna he's gonna justify a rate hike in september and lay this the groundwork on for one in december
0: this is classic we're gonna come back with diane swank of uh grant thornton john i love it now it's alive or dead jackson hall
1: apparently I never of are you that. are you upset you're not going this year i'm
0: always upset is exactly as dr swank said the idea the idea that you just calm down and mingle is, I've had some treasured moments. We've got Michael McKee there this year. Oh.
1: We're gonna catch up with Michael.
0: I believe we will. Diane, thank you so much. Diane Swank with us today with Grant Thornton. Fiery discussion there on too many themes at the moment. What's so wonderful, folks, about what Mr. Rubenstein is doing with peer-to-peer. It's not just easy layup conversations. Right now, anything, for example, with Tim Cook of Apple, well, you know what? It's one big victory lap. And that is not the case with your guests uh, this week. Um, I was amazed, David, at looking at United Airlines stock, the terrific performance over the last decade. And yet, for Mr. Munoz, Oscar Munoz, this has been a fractious era, hasn't it?
7: It's been difficult for him for a couple of reasons. When he first took over the job, within a month, he had a heart attack. He then had a heart transplant at the age of 52. Mm -hmm. So he's a vegan, a marathon runner, and all of a sudden he has a heart attack, and not only a heart attack, a heart transplant. A week after the transplant, he's back at work. And uh, so he had to overcome that, but he also had the challenges of of, – of, of people being dragged off, someone being dragged off the airline. You'll probably remember that. And uh, that was a very um, unfortunate incident that they've now apologized for and corrected their procedures. And also they had some animals die on uh, on, on board and they corrected yeah. the procedures for that. So um, he's, but the stock has done well. And as you know, uh, all airlines have done reasonably well, but United has done particularly right. well. And I think Oscar is a really, really good manager. He came from a complicated environment. He was one of eight children. Grew up in, a, in Southern California, was a long-haired hippie um, surfer by his own description, got into Harvard but didn't think he would fit in there and stayed at USC, went to Pepperdine uh, Law School eventually, and then worked his way up at CSX and other places. But then when an emergency arose at United Airlines, he came in as a board member to be the CEO, and then he had his health challenges.
8: David, I can't wait to hear this interview. I'm particularly interested uh, in what Mr. Munoz's uh, view on support animals is and sort of this trend where everybody yes. and, and their mom is bringing a peacock on board uh, to sit next to them and provide yes. them comfort. <laughs> what do you say about that?
7: Yes, he describes well. he describes. How, um many people are used to the idea of bringing a support animal on who might be a dog. And some have brought on other animals. And one person brought on a peacock, which is hard to see how that supports uh, you. But the one that he describes is probably the, the straw that broke the camel's back is an emotional support animal had to have its own emotional support animal on the plane. So the person brought on It's an emotional support animal, and that animal had its own emotional support animal. At that point, they realized they had to change the
0: rules. (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm
8: dying. This is amazing.
0: You know, and just so everybody knows, I've never done this stunt. Vet Bill loves to travel, but the problem is Bloomberg has me back, Lisa, in deep economy on United Airlines, and Vet Bill will only go up with Rubenstein in first class.
8: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I love that. uh, I love the idea of that. I mean, I guess, David, I I haven't.
7: I, you know, I, I've never actually seen an emotional sport animal need its own emotional sport animal, but I guess it's a growing problem in our country.
8: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard of actually animals being put on Prozac. Uh, actually, um, I knew of a couple whose dog was somewhat depressed and they put the dog on Prozac. So uh, it's, a have... <laughs> it's a logical <laughs> step a to have. It's a logical step.
0: Do a Segui here to something germane.
8: All right, David. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really curious to know, I mean, going forward, what the big challenges are for him. And uh, did he talk at all about what he's doing going forward or is he done? Is he just enjoying the sweet life?
7: Well, the, the, the challenges that all airlines have is, is this. They they really depend on the price of oil being a big factor. And airlines have made a lot of money in recent years because oil prices have been low, and therefore gas prices have been low. As oil prices come up, it's going to be more challenging. But it, it's interesting to think about this. All the things that airlines do to get you to go on their planes, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, miles, mileages that you give you in mileage clubs, um, nice lounges. They might give you better food. In the end, the only thing that really matters, he says, is price and um, availability of time. In other words, all the other things are nice, but in the end, price is the most right. important thing, and then your your availability. So, uh, and price is going to be a factor for all these airlines because as as oil prices go up, they don't have the ability to really cut costs that yeah. much. So it's, a, it's a bit of a
0: challenge. David, I've got to ask this question of historic import. And I say this, folks, with exceptional interest in the fact that Mr. Rubenstein, one in two years beyond Watergate, served as chief counsel for the United States Senate Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on constitutional amendments. David, that means you and I have a collective memory of other challenges for the nations. Simply, Attorney Rubenstein, your thoughts on what this nation observed yesterday afternoon.
7: Well, it was a surprise to many people that both of these events happened at the same time. Um, As we learned from Watergate and other complicated things in our country's history, it's hard to make a judgment on day one because what you think is going to happen on day one doesn't actually happen on, you know, 30 days out or 60 days out. So I wouldn't prejudge what's going to happen, but it's clearly uh, an episode of uh, a teaching moment for younger people who haven't lived through these kind of things, and I just wouldn't rush the judgment about what's going to happen, but it's clearly something that... uh, will have an impact on the way our government operates. I just don't know what the outcome will be, yeah. and I hope it'll be the best for everybody.
8: Well, David, can you connect the dots from Washington, D.C. to Wall Street, given your experience in Carlisle and as a longtime investor? Right. you know how When does this start to filter down to the economics of this country? At what point does this become more right. than just Washington, D.C. noise?
7: As long as the stock market is in pretty good shape, as long as the economy is growing at the pace it is, I don't think you're going to see big political problems in Washington, D.C. If the stock market were to go down, the economy goes into a slower growth or even low growth, no growth mode. Then you'll see the politicians in Washington, I think, doing different things. But right now, the economy is pretty good, and uh, we're growing at a bigger clip than people expected. So I just don't think you see it right now. But, you know, I think things will change If, if the economy Falls uh, before, the, let's say, the November elections, it'll have some impact and, in the elections. But the economy is as good as it is now. I'm not sure it'll have the impact, the events of yesterday have the impact that, that, that a weak economy would have.
0: David, then bring us forward to what that generation would be doing in Washington now. And I think of the great Abe Ribikoff of Connecticut. I mean, they were. it was a different Capitol Hill during Watergate and after Watergate when yes. you served, wasn't it?
7: Yes. When I worked in in Capitol Hill in the late uh, mid-70s, Democrats and Republicans did talk to each other, and Democrats and Republicans did work to get legislation together. Um, There have been some signs of progress in that regard though lately, as you probably know. The appropriations process seems to be working. We haven't had a full set of appropriations bills passed in the regular order for about 15 years or so. Now it looks as if Congress might actually pass all the appropriation bills on time. That would be good. I started a program a few years ago, very modest in impact probably on what I'm talking about, bring Democrats and Republicans together. I host a dinner on Capitol Hill once a month, bring in a great American historian like Doris Kearns Goodwin or David McCullough, yeah. Yeah. interview them in front of members of Congress, and members of Congress use that as a way to socialize people from the opposite party. And they tell me that today right. they hardly ever get a chance to talk to people from the opposite party because the situation is not very good for that now. And this has no press there, no media, there's no fundraising. So you know, a lot of different things are being done in Washington. to Try to bring the parties together. Hopefully uh, we'll be able to have a, a, a more bipartisan approach in future years.
0: David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us uh, today from his travels in Switzerland. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast